Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ. That's 90.1 FM for you who did not know. We're available beyond the FM dial at radionorthland.org. You can listen to us live and in the moment. We have our archives available and get you connected to our SoundCloud page too of Rasslin Memories Then and Now episodes for well over eight years now. Man, the time has flown. We've had so many good interviews throughout the years. And yeah, and you can also get us to live with the TuneIn app. Well, I'm Glenn Broggett, and uh, we're bringing in a very special, uh, very special guest, the OG of Rasslin Memories uh, then and now, uh, Rasslin Memories uh, Minnesota and pro wrestling historian George Shire, uh, to talk today about the life of Pampero Ferpo. And uh, yes, George, we're back again, kind of uh, under under some sad circumstances, but it, what a what a professional wrestler uh, we're, we're going to be uh, celebrating here in this hour of Rasslin Memories then and now. But it's always a pleasure to have my OG uh, back in working with me here this week, the original of uh, Rasslin Memories. Yeah, you know, it's, it is great, uh, Glenn. You know, and you talk about eight years, nine years already that uh, we kind of came up with this Rasslin Memories concept, and you've kept the ball rolling while I've uh, taken some long, long hiatuses and... Uh, but uh, it, it's still a fun show, and of course, when you're talking old school wrestling, man, it just it just goes. And you're right. Uh, we're talking today. Uh, we're going to share some stories about uh, the wild bull of the Pampas, and uh, he passed away. Pampero Furpo. He passed away yesterday. Uh, when I don't know when this will air, but he died uh, January 9th, and uh, 89 years old. Uh, born in 1930, so in fact, he had a birthday that would have come around this year. He'd have turned 90 on April 6th, but uh, definitely a legend in the business. Oh, yeah. I, I'm reading, and I've been reading some of the tributes and stuff that have been rolling around online. Yeah, he was just a few months shy of his 90th birthday, and especially when you're talking about pro wrestling and a pro wrestler's longevity, whether, you know, out of the ring, that that, that has to be a, an impressive a feat to be able to, uh, you know, when you hear so many that have passed on due to whatever ailments or whatever problems, that he was able, a guy that was known as this wild man, that was able to live uh, such a, a life, even after wrestling, uh, he, he was what, with the Postal Service for many years. This was a guy that kept active, and I thought I think I would have loved to have had him on my, uh, you know, would love to have had been on his postal route back in the day, but what a, a long, fulfilling life, though, that he, he did lead, lead and live until his passing here uh, just a few days ago. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, Glenn, because when you when you mention about the post office, you know, I'm one of these guys that through the years I've I wait for the mailman every day because I, I've gotten magazines that I've subscribed to and I get uh, wrestling programs through the years. And back in my comic book days, I'd get comic books in the mail. So, you know, the mail is special to me. And I, you, you're right. What a blast that would have been if you're waiting for the mailman and and it's the wild bull of the pampas delivering your mail. I mean, what a hoot. And uh, he did. He delivered mail in San Jose, California, after his uh, wrestling days uh, were over and uh, did that for close to like 15, 20 years. I mean, he had a a long career with the U.S. Post Office. So a a man who uh, wrestled for about close to 30 years, he started in 1957 which is ironic, too, because he would have been 27 years old when he started. And, uh, you know, 
in in most cases that's that's later than most wrestlers start in the business but uh yeah he was quite the character when he started he uh started out in texas and he used the name ivan the terrible which was a name that was given to him by morris siegel who was the uh uh houston and dallas uh, area promoter at the time that texas territory and he was a wild man he had the same bushy long fuzzy hair and you got to go back to 1957 and you realize that you know that was really out there in in 57 because most of the people in those days you know they had the pompadour hairstyle the elvis look you know elvis presley look and that sort of thing and then here's this character with this big black bushy beard and the long fuzzy hair claiming to be some wild man from the ukraine uh, the Argentine, and uh, at different times, you know, how they build him. But he was extremely uh, believable. He was he was off and running because when he was in Texas in those, those early months, he ended up holding the Texas title uh, almost immediately. And another little tidbit that was kind of fun back, you know, because I remember this from years ago, but uh, while he was in Texas, he ended up teaming uh, very briefly with a, a wrestler by the name of uh, Nikolai Zolotov, a Russian. Mm-hmm. And what fans didn't know, of course, at the time, and you know, historians uncovered this later on, but that was Paul Butcher Vashon. <laughs> and here they were under different names, teaming together. And Paul Paul Vashon would have been very young at that point too. And they both did end up in the old NWA Minneapolis territory in 1958. And they wrestled here. And uh, Nikolai Zolotov was here as a Russian, not associated with his real-life brother, Mad Dog, at all. And, of course, Mad Dog wasn't even on the radar for uh, Minneapolis territory at that point in time. But here was Furpo, who came into Minneapolis as Ivan the terrible. And, you know, I've told the story over the years how I got hooked on wrestling in September of 1959, and it was Tiny Mills and Stan Kowalski that really cemented my addiction. But I had been to wrestling cards sporadically uh, from about 1956, 57, 58, my dad would take me. My mom was the wrestling fan in those days, and that was when my folks were still together. And I would go as a little kid. My memories are, are you know, as a little kid, you don't really retain stuff. My memories are vague, but I do have these, you know, like these snapshots where I remember. And I do remember Ivan the Terrible just briefly because of his just his distinctive look. I mean, this guy was, he was a madman. And I do remember how he would come into the ring and he'd run around and just unruly. And he was allegedly not able to speak any English at that point. So there was no way for the referee to communicate with him. And, you know, could they control him? And, um, I vaguely remember that. And I actually posted a, uh, program from that card that I remember um, just, you know, earlier 
of his passing. So, yeah, I had those early memories of him. Yeah, and and we're looking. I'm looking at some of the stuff of which he when he wrestled under Ivan the Terrible. I mean, we talked about here working in, down in Texas, but he also started to make his way up in, into the Midwest and uh, working shows uh, in Nebraska and then over in Illinois. And I'm looking at some old results, and he even uh, worked a, a, a contest uh, in the Chicagoland area for uh, the NWA office. He ended up teaming up with. Uh, the Lazowski brothers. I'm looking at one of his uh, matches here uh, with Reggie and Stan Lazowski uh, to take on Bobby Manigoff uh, and Pat O'Connor and uh, Tony Salapini. So that that seems like an interesting match, just because of uh, him teaming up with with the Lazowski brothers. That that creates a curiosity with me because I mean, look at all these guys and the later di- different gimmicks and what made them even more big. But here they are, kind of in more humble beginnings. Well, and it's interesting you bring up that particular six-man tag because that took place on uh, January 31st in Chicago. And just a card before that on January 4th of that same year, which was uh, 1958, uh, Furpo, as Ivan the Terrible, had teamed up with Reggie Lasowski in a tag team match. And they had taken on Wilbur Snyder and Bobby Manigoff. So he, he and Crusher pre-crusher, Reggie Lasowski, they had had somewhat of a a heel teaming back and forth. And it really is interesting to me when I look at that type of stuff, because if you go ahead uh, a number of years to 1964, when Furpo came back to the Minneapolis Territory, and when we, just so our listeners know, when we say Minneapolis Territory, that was the NWA in the 50s, and then in 1960, it became the AWA, but it was known as the Minneapolis Territory. So if I ever use those terms, that's what we're talking about. And so when Furpo came back to Minneapolis, uh, in actually it was early 1965, he, uh, or late 64, when he came back, he came back as Pampero Furpo a wild bull of the pampas from Argentina. And there was no mention to any fan or on TV, all-star wrestling that he had been here, you know, six years earlier in 1958. And as Ivan the Terrible, fans forgot about that. And you had a different fan base because a lot of times the fan base would change. And so just those uh, few regulars that maybe remembered or put connected the dots would have known that. But, there was no mention that he had previously been here. But when he came in, you know, he was immediately put over. And he ended up into a, a, a long, long program with the Crusher in 1965 after the Crusher, Reggie Lasowski, had turned babyface. And that was in January of 65 when the Crusher turned from a heel to a baby. And then he and Furpo had this long-running program against each other. And, you know, Crusher, his antics were hilarious because he would come out on his interviews and he'd have a, one of these uh, spray uh, guns with him that he was going to spray the bugs out of Furpo's hair that were in there. <laughs> and, you know, he called him fuzzy and irritated him when he was in the ring, and Furpo was going to end the Crusher's career. And I mean, they had a series of matches, had the cage match, you know, the big blow-off match. The irony of it with 
the Furpo Crusher connection is that for one of the very few times in pro wrestling, you know, wrestling was notorious for having wrestlers get suspended. And when they were suspended, it usually meant they were just going to another territory for a little while, or it meant that uh, they needed some time off because they were nursing some minor injuries or they were on vacation or whatever it was. And they were using the suspension in most cases as a buildup towards another program with that, that wrestler or other wrestlers. Well, in the case of Furpo, he actually, according to the AWA, and they did this on All-Star Wrestling, he was suspended from the AWA for three years. They came out and said, we've suspended him for three years from any competition. Well, the, the reality was is that Furpo left the AWA, and for the next three years, from, for 1966, 67, and 68, he is wrestling down in the South, in the Carolinas, in Florida, in Australia. I mean, he's, he's just doing his normal thing. He's in Hawaii. And it was one of the few times when in 1969, Furpo was coming back. His suspension served, and it, this is the way it was presented on TV, and, of course, the storyline was so great because they said, has he learned his lesson? Will he still be a wild man? Will we be able to control him? You know, that sort of thing. So he comes back, and he's still bitter. He's still a heel. And he's boasting right away that he wants the crusher, the man that caused him to lose all of these, all this money. Because they're telling the fans that Furpo hadn't been wrestling for all these years. You know, he'd lost his income. Because in those days, people didn't know when a wrestler, you know, was in other territories no. and that sort of thing. So he wants Crusher. Well, they eventually build up to it, and he gets his match against the Crusher for his revenge. And naturally, the fans are pulling for Crush. But lo and behold, Crusher is also involved in a, in a rivalry right now with Dr. X, the mass man. And who comes to ringside to try to get at the crusher during the purple crusher match, but Dr. X. And before you know it, it ends up where Dr. X causes purple to lose to the crusher. Well, miraculously, purple wanted revenge against the guy who caused him to be defeated by the guy he hated the crusher. So he has a match with Dr. X, Furpo does. And they ended up having a few matches around the AWA. The program went well. Of course, X is the heel now. The fans are cheering for Furpo because everybody cheered against the mass man in those days because they wanted to know who he was. Mm -hmm. That storyline ran so well. Mm -hmm. And so Furpo was getting cheers. Well, ironically, with Furpo getting cheers, this was around the Vietnam era and it's turning into 6970 and it's around the Vietnam era the hippies are you know the, the hippie movement and all of this with the longer hair and Furpo started to actually have uh all of a sudden he's showing up at the college campuses and the fans the young kids are are flocking to him so he becomes a baby face the and now he's te now he's teaming with some of the other baby faces you know guys like 
uh, Billy Lyons, Billy Red Lyons and Red Bastine and, and uh, around the circuit. Well, lo and behold, the Crusher, of course, is feuding with Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon for the tag team title in 1970 because, you know, it was Crusher or it was Mad Dog and Butcher that had taken the title from the Crusher and Dick the Bruiser back in August of 69. So Crusher wants his revenge and Crusher's in this heated battle with Mad Dog. They've now had their cage matches again and selling out all over the AWA. So, you know, Bruiser's not available, Crusher says. And he's got to find somebody that can fight dirty like the Vashans. So he pulls out on All-Star Wrestling this mystery partner. And surprise of surprise when he pulls, he actually has the guy sitting on a stool while Marty O'Neill is interviewing him with a, the the guy sitting on the stool has a, a tarp over him, a big cloak. And Crusher pulls the tarp off and here it is, Pampero Furpo. Oh, my God, Purple and Crusher together as a team, can this work? You know, the great angle with wrestling. Can these two enemies work together? And will they be able to put their bitter feelings aside? And will they turn on one another? I mean, classic tag team storytelling. And then they have a series of matches with the Vashon brothers. So Purple was cemented, and that was awesome stuff back then. Oh yeah, and I'm looking at uh, also, you know, not only uh, was he working with Billy Red and you know teaming up against the the Bashans, he also uh, teamed up with Billy Red for a, for a series of bouts too against Larry Hedding and Lars Anderson. So talk about you know another great tag team in the AWA had a, 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 a cache of great 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 acts, but what another act good good uh, feud for them uh, to help Pampera further his popularity as not only being a wild man professional wrestler, but now you as you mentioned. He's kind of hit into the counterculture of the time. Oh, he did. And I remember one time when I went to a uh, what we called the spot show in those days. They held a card at Hamlin University in St. Paul, right off of Snelling Avenue by the Minnesota State Fairgrounds, where mm-hmm. Hamlin University is. And they were holding this uh, wrestling card for the alumni. They were raising some money or something, you know, typical spot show where they do a benefit. And the the uh, the match was going to be uh, with Pampero Furpo on it, and believe it or not, against Doctor X. So, my friend Jim Melby, who lived over on Snelling and University Avenue, we walked from his house down to the Hamlin University to the fairgrounds, which probably was about a mile. I don't remember how you know how far it was, and. They got the, the students and everything at the uh, university. They're so excited that Furpo's going to be there. And they've got this, uh, what do you call it, hanging them in effigy? Is that the word? I, I think that would be, be, be somewhat, I think, I think you're on the right, right track there. Yeah. Well, they, they were pulling this type of thing where they were going to hang Dr. X and Furpo was going to do the job for them. And it was a great spot show. And for, for that type of a match in a smaller venue like that in the, the uh, university uh, gymnasium. But I remember so vividly how much fun it was. And of course, me, I still was at that point, I was just a huge mark for Dr. X. He was my favorite till the day he died last year. I mean, and a good friend, and you know that. So, I mean, this was a great memory for me when I thought about Furple. And, um, 
There's another funny story I'm going to share about Furpo. He came back to the AWA in the mid-70s after being gone for a few years. And he came back as a good guy. Uh, he wasn't really pushed to the main event status that he had been previously, although he did wrestle Nick Bockwinkel for the uh, AWA title a couple of times, and, and he was involved in some you know, high-profile second-to-the-main-event matches. But he had a great feud going with Baron Von Raschke, in 1976 and Raschke at the time was a hated German as, as fans know. And he was teamed with mad dog Vashon in uh, a great tag team at that time. So Furpo had a battle of the claw holds with uh, Raschke and Furpo was calling his claw hold El Garfio. And we know uh, Baron has his famed claw hold. So they had some great battles. But you had mentioned teaming with Larry Hennig or wrestling against Larry Hennig. Well, Larry Hennig by this time now is a, a good guy. And here, here's a funny story how Purple got involved in this. Larry Hennig was teamed with Big Joe LaDuke in a team called the Lumberjacks. And they got a mid-card push and were doing well. They had, even had a couple title matches at the time against uh, the tag champs. But they were involved in a program against the Valiant brothers, Handsome Jimmy and Luscious Johnny. And Hennig and LaDuke had wrestled a number of matches against these guys. They ended up in Minneapolis. And without, in fact, as I'm talking to you, I am going to look here because I, if my memory serves me correctly, it was 1976, and I want to say around May something. And they wrestled, let's see here, May. There it is. May 8th in Minneapolis on, in 1976. Furpo and Larry Hennig. Now, Joe LaDuke was unavailable for this match. But they were going to go against the Valiants in a loser-leave town, loser-leave the AWA match. So this was going to be the end of the Hennig feud with the Valiants. Furpo is his partner. Now, here's the fun part. We knew one of them was going to leave. We knew it wasn't going to be Larry Hennig because he's the hometown guy. So it was time for the Valiants to depart the AWA. So they were going to lose. But the fun part was is that when the Valiants lost, and that means Hennig and Furpo won, Furpo was gone. He never appeared on another AWA card. What? After that, he was he. So we always laughed. We said, you know, Furbo Furbo must have misunderstood the the instructions for the match <laughs> because he too had left the AWA, <laughs> and then he was in Detroit for a lot of those years afterwards, and and he was there in Detroit before he had returned too, and had some you know in Detroit uh, in the Francis Flesher promotion there. It was the Sheik, Ed Farhat, was the uh, promoter, the behind-the-scenes guy. But Furpo had legendary matches in Detroit against the Sheik and against Bobo Brazil and Igor Vodic, Mighty Igor. And he was, he was legendary in Detroit. 
Well, that's a that's a, a, a an ideal territorial fit, though. When you think about that character of, of Pampero, how you, you can instantly see money with, with with working with a guy like the Sheik or Bobo or whoever was in the Detroit Killer area Tim at the Brooks time. Is another one there. Which one? Killer Tim Brooks. Yes, yes, one. yes. He had uh, plenty and plenty of matches, plenty of big matches with with the Killer. Who who uh, you don't get to hear much about. I mean, for the history he had in his pro wrestling career, I think a lot more needs to be said. I heard he's going to be uh, putting together, or has been working now, you know, he's been battling some ill health. I heard Killer's going to be putting together a book here soon. That would be a great book. Um, I don't know that he had as many territories that he worked in as, you know, like some guys like Furple, but definitely a storied career for Brooks. That would be fun. If he's got a book, it's going to be an interesting one. You know, you know, around 1976, too, in the AWA, uh, uh, Pampero Furpo was uh, involved, too, with uh, uh, with with some matches, with some feuding with, with Bobby Heenan and, and the Heenan family, okay. and even up to the point of getting title shots with Nick Bockwinkel. So we talk yeah. a little bit about that, that, that part of uh, his run there uh, in 76 with the AWA. Well, he was always a good draw. And I mean, the thing about Furpo, if, if you heard his interviews, even back in the 60s when he came in here and had his battles with the Crusher, you know, I don't think there's anyone that could ever imitate the the voice inflection and the style that Furpo delivered his interview because he, he, he just did it so well. He had somewhat broken English with an accent a little bit. And, but, you know, he he would always end his interviews with, uh, and, and I'm going to do this, but again, like I say, I am a far cry from what Purple could ever be. But it was similar to this. He would end his interviews and he would say, it is I, it is me, it is Pampero Purple. Oh, yeah. And then he'd walk off the interview area. And he, he was very intimidating. Um, I, I always thought in the 60s at his heel peak when I saw Furple, I always felt that he was as equal or the equivalent of Mad Dog Bashan with the intensity in the ring that he gave, because he wasn't a scientific wrestler, baby or heel by any stretch. Most guys that I ever talked to that worked with him, they said that he was very stiff in the ring. He didn't, he didn't really take bumps. He, he was just, he was a shorter, stocky guy. Him and Mad Dog were, you know, kind of about the same height and body stature. So to think that we had these two uh, beasts in our territory for the times that they were together here, I mean, it was pretty, pretty intense, but purple was very believable and very scary. I mean, he, he'd, he'd play it up in the ring where the, the fans uh, would be so irate with him and the referee couldn't control him. And, and supposedly he didn't understand the rules and, you know, he played this, but the man was very educated. Glenn. Mm-hmm. He, he, he actually knew seven languages. I mean, that's a fact. And very smart and a very good family man. Uh, his his son and daughter, they've they've told some stories. I've seen a couple of them uh, in the past couple of days. But And I never met those guys. I did have the honor to meet and talk with Furple in, in the year 2000 at Cauliflower Alley. And it was, it was kind of funny here too, Glenn, because we'd always only known Furple 
as this wild, out-of-control, bushy-haired, bushy beard. I mean, he, he had hair. He had more hair than, you know, most men would kill to have even some of his hair. Oh, no and doubt. he walked, I walked into the uh, Cauliflower Alley room in 2000, and there was this gentleman sitting at, the, at a table. And I found out that it was Pampero Furple. But I'm telling you, you would have never recognized him because gone was the beard. The hair was gone, short, very cropped, uh, short hair. He wasn't bald or anything, but he had just real short cropped hair, no beard. And of course, at the time, he was, you know, the year 2000, that was 20 years ago almost. So he was, you know, 69, 70 years old. And I had the chance to go up to him and I talked with him for about 20 minutes the first time around. I remember having a little bit hard time understanding him a couple of times, but what a joy. And when I told him I had remembered his time in the AWA and I had remembered him as Ivan the Terrible, he seemed so, you know, um, just honored that he was remembered for that. And one of my greatest pleasures was in 2017 when I was down in Wichita Falls, Texas, uh, as the chairman for the uh, induction, the board for the Hall of Fame down there, I really pushed my buddies James Beard, who you know well, and Gary Young, who wrestled as um, Gary Harrington is his name. Gary Young was the rest, was the name he used in wrestling. Yep. Gorgeous Gary Young. Well, Gary Young. James Beard and I, we were in charge of the committee that year, and we really pushed in our discussions talking about why we needed to get Purple inducted into the Hall of Fame. And we got him on the ballot. Those that were able to vote, all of the voters, they voted almost unanimously that Purple should be included. And in, the, uh, in May of 2018, Purple was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And the whole objective, and I remember our conversation when we were sitting around the table, James, Gary, and I, the whole thing was, I said to them, you know, we've got to get some of these guys that are up in the years, we've got to get them the recognition that they've deserved and that they haven't gotten. And Furpo is one of them. And we need to get him on. So we, we got him and we got contacted, you know, with him and, and agreed that we could get him in and it was awesome. And so I, I'm really proud of that, that I was able to get that done. Oh yeah, you should, most definitely you guys uh, did, did a great thing uh, to keep the, uh, you know, just to acknowledge and respect and, and keep the legacy of what he has done in the ring alive. We're remembering Pampero Ferpo on this edition of Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett along with Minnesota and pro wrestling historian George Shire. Now, we talked a little bit about uh, Pampero's runs in, in uh, Texas and uh, working up in the Midwest and in the Detroit office, AWA. But another part of the United States, uh, even across the ocean, I'd say, where where Fairpo really kind of expanded his uh, legend is the runs he had working in Hawaii uh, for 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 the big time uh, wrestling company uh, out there. 
Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, Pampero's run? Because from what I've been reading and, and, and getting as much as I can for notes together, it really seemed like uh, in Hawaii, Fairpo became uh, some sort of institution. It was almost like he was he could have ran for a you know public office. Uh, although I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but he, I mean, just because of the popular <laughs> level of popularity that he he brought, uh, you know, and his personality that he took to Hawaii and really kind of carved his niche out as a legend there. Well, and, you know, we should point out that while he was in Hawaii, he wasn't Pampero Purple and he wasn't Ivan the Terrible. They billed him in Hawaii as the missing link. So he had that name uh, a couple of decades or at least a decade and a half before Dewey Robertson took it uh, in the WCCW territory and then later into the WWF as the missing link. But Furpo was the missing link. And again, playing on that, you know, this guy is lost. He's, he's, he's some, we don't know where he comes from. He's a wild man. He's under uncontrollable. And he did have a huge run. And while you mentioned Hawaii, um, he went in there in 1969 and he had a, <laughs> you think about these two wrestling each other. He had a match with the Hawaiian champion, King Curtis Iakia. Oh, wow. Now that, you know, that, that's, he's a nut job or was, he's passed on too, God bless him. But he, he was a, a wild character. So he and Furpo had a battle, which Furpo ended up winning. And that was back in July of 69 when Furpo became the Hawaiian champion. Then Furpo had a great program against Ripper Roy Collins who in Hawaii, Collins was always way over, did really well on the West Coast uh, for a lot of his career, not only Hawaii, but in California and everything. And so they had a huge program. They exchanged the Hawaiian championship back and forth. Uh, Furpo also held the, uh, a couple of years earlier in Hawaii, he held the Hawaiian tag team title with Neft Maivia. And they battled again against Ripper Collins, along with uh, Collins' partner, Johnny Barand. And then uh, Barand and Hans Mortier won the title from uh, Maivia and Furple. Furple was teamed up with Gentleman Jim Haiti there. And AWA fans, old AWA fans, old people like me, Glenn, they would remember Glenn, uh, Jim Haiti as uh, one of the great uh, preliminary guys and, and good-looking young baby faces in the AWA back in 1960-61, he had wrestled here. And then Jim Haiti passed away in 1968 from a, a heart attack. 69, he passed away. But um, Furpo had a run there. Uh, he and Haiti won the Hawaiian title from King Curtis and Ripper Collins. He went into Los Angeles, and he was brought in. Furpo was brought in recognized as the America's champion, allegedly, this was a phantom match, but he allegedly had beaten uh, Colasso Colasetti in Mexico for the match, for the title. And so he brought, he was brought in as champion. He held it for a few months, and then he lost it to Iron Mike DiBiase. So he was big in California, and he was big in California in the 70s as well. Uh, just had a, a a good run wherever he was in the Pacific Northwest Territory. He was over at a tag team in Omaha with Tough Tony Bourne for a while in the Omaha Omaha circuit. So wherever he went, he was he was really really over uh, as 
this wild character. And I've even, you know, he's, like I said, he's been all over. And I think another really uh, a good component to, uh, you know, get, get the uh, potential fans in whatever territories to uh, pay attention and to anticipate uh, if there ever was a guy in that era that got a lot of pub, you know, a lot of press and a lot of pictures in the wrestling magazines for his personality. And that had to have been a little extra elevation for him, too, as far as more bookings and more uh, just basically getting himself out there. Uh, the pro wrestling magazine era was definitely... Definitely made for Pempero Furpo and some of those classic shots, black and white or color. That was a guy that just the camera was meant to, to take shots of because he just had that 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 look, that image, and, and made people want to go out to those arenas and, and check out the curiosity. Well, and the thing too about his personality and his look, Glenn, is he wasn't you know he didn't have any flashy costumes on. He didn't have any classic you know shiny boots or or robes or or jackets or anything. I mean, Furpo came to the ring just prepared to do business. And, and he come running in with his tunic top on and his normal black trunks and boots. And, and he'd get in the ring and just literally kick ass the whole card. That's the way he was. And the fans, I, I'm really serious on this. He was one of those guys that is proof that a wrestler did not need to be a champion to be a champion. Because he was a champion in the sense that whenever an opponent was against him, they knew they were going to have a good house. They knew they were going to have the fans into the match. And that was the, the whole thing. You got to have a heel or in the case when he was a baby at different times, but he, he always had the fans into it. And I remember a match he had with Nick Bockwinkle when Nick was champ. And this was in 1976. And, you know, as, as hated as Nick and Bobby Heenan were, and I mean, everybody there believed that no matter how tricky and, and dirty that Bockwinkle and Heenan could be, they believed in Furpo that he could outdo them. Whether he did or not, it doesn't matter. Because when the match was over, Bockwinkle and Heenan were both laying there out while Furpo had his hand raised. And it didn't matter that he didn't win the title. He was just a guy that didn't need that type of recognition. Though he did hold some titles, as we've pointed to, he was U.S. champion a couple of times, three times in uh, the Detroit promotion. But he didn't need a title to draw the fans. And he he worked in Australia for a number of years, uh, really over down there. So he just had a good, good career and it was um, it was fun when I had a chance to just chat with him that briefly brief time in 2000. Uh, he's a guy that I would love to have gotten to know, but of course we're on separate sides of the planet where you know he was from and where I live here, and it just never happened. And, and to to my knowledge, he never returned to uh, Cauliflower after that. So other than an occasional fan fest along the way. I know he was at one fan fest, I think 2011 or 2012. And then uh, he was at the uh, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2018 for his induction. The last few uh, months, I know he's had some health issues. And, you know, it was sad when he left. I've been, you know, I reflect on these things, Glenn, because the last couple of years um, has been extremely hard with all of the many wrestlers from 
my era, you know, they've left us. And it's natural. They're, they're up in the years. They're all in their upper 80s into their 90s. And it's natural that they're going to pass away. We accept that. It's part of life. Death is part of life. But it's never easy. And the past year with losing Larry Hennig and Harley Race and Dr. X and Stan Kowalski a couple of years ago now and Vern Gagne, and then just we found out, I want to just throw it out there, that we found out uh, just a couple of weeks back that Rene Goulet had passed away last May, and no one knew it. The family had not released it until just a, a couple of weeks back where it was announced that Rene had left us. And that's a sad one, too, because Rene, uh, another just an outstanding performer. So my sympathy to his family and friends that uh, thank him for Rene's work. But Furpo's passing, you know, it, it's closing in on the the end of a great era in professional wrestling because it's it's now down, if you look across the United States with all of the great, great pro wrestlers from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even some of them into the 90s that, that worked those decades, um, there are but just a handful. You can almost count them on one hand that are left with us. Um, and it's inevitable that eventually, you know, we'll we'll lose a couple more. Um, and as I say that, and I say about counting on one hand, I, I, they come to mind real quick. I'm thinking Jack Lanza is still with us, Chris Markoff, uh, Danny Hodge, Reggie Parks, uh, Cowboy Bill Watts, uh, they're still with us, um, our beloved Kenny J. But then you go around the country. I mean, again, it's the, the main event stars, the headliners of the four decades that I mentioned. There aren't too many left. And Furpo certainly was a stellar performer of those decades and gave us a lot to talk about and a lot of memories. Oh, most definitely. And you, were, you mentioned Rene Goulet, and of course, uh, we, we heard of his passing, uh, like I said, not that long ago. But Rene and, and, and Pampero definitely crossed paths uh, in other companies through the years. And it was uh, Rene was kind of uh, one of the, the original opponents when... Uh, earlier opponents in 19 well, it was about 1972 when Pampero was brought back up to New York uh, to, to work in the in Madison Square Garden uh, around the time of Pedro Morales's uh, reign as a world champion so uh, that that had to have been some interesting match uh, matchups uh, with, with Pedro uh, Pampero in the garden and in, in those days of the garden especially with uh, Pedro's fan base it could get very rabid so there must have been a fine line being walked between uh, how far can we take it because of the passion of the fans and and just the character of the wild man that Pampero was that had to have been an interesting uh, way of figuring things out in the ring and, and keep the audience at bay well you know Furpo was one of those guys in the ring and, and most of the guys that you would talk to that worked with him they would say, you know, you get into a match with Furpo, and you, you're going to have your outcome. You know what the outcome of the match is going to be. But throughout the match, uh, Furpo is going to take you on, on a few roads that, you know, like, okay, well, what the hell is he going to do next? You know, because he, he, he would go sort of by the seat of his pants during the course of the match. But he was able to do it in such a way that it really was believable. I mean, he was a wild man. People think about, I know if people mention, if you mention wild wrestlers to 
modern day fans, naturally a man like uh, King Kong Bruiser Brody is going to come to mind. But when when you go back 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and you think about Furpo, he was, in my opinion, he was better than Brody as far as what he could do in the ring. Brody had the, the uh, ultimate size, but Brody was, ex- you know, he, of course, he was believable too. I mean, he was, uh, he was crazy in the ring and, and you loved watching him. But Furpo was, was uh, before Brody, but I, I think if I was to pick the two and, and I'd have fun watching them in a match or a tag team too, actually, but I think I'd pick Furpo, you know, being the originator of, of such a gimmick because he was, he just got it over so well. You know, and the you know, and it's kind of a shame too. Uh, you know, in the uh, you know the seventies, there's uh, as far as film goes, there's not quite as much uh, saved. You know, with various television and territories, there is some out there. But I would have loved to have uh, you know, especially just to see him compete and work these matches. Not only uh, you know with the champions of the day, or but also guys like Johnny Valentine and and, and Ferpo would have would seemed to me to be an interesting match. Just the way they would play the, out the psychology. Uh, while Bull Curry, there's another guy too that uh, that would be a fun one to to, to have seen a, you know, a few matches with him and, and Purple, and uh, also you know the Sheik. I mean, the Sheik was he had a set match, but a boy, when you bring a guy in like Purple, definitely could shake things up and shake things down in the in the old Kobo. And you had mentioned a, a moment ago that paid or that Purple uh, had a run in New York against Pedro Morales. And that was in the early 70s when Pedro was champion and Furpo did well there. But we should point out that Furpo had actually been uh, in the New York Territory when it was still Capital Sports in 1960. He had had a run there as Furpo as well, and he was very over. Uh, A legendary tag team for a short time, but a team with Dr. Jerry Graham. Now, it's interesting because Jerry Graham was – uh, the the real nut job of the Graham family, you know, they always had crazy Luke being crazy, but I'm going to tell you right now, it was Jerry Graham that was crazy. And and let's point out, none of the Grahams were really brothers. They were wrestling brothers only. But uh, Jerry Graham, and as I mentioned that, I'm looking at a photo on my wall of Purple and Dr. Jerry Graham uh, as a tag team uh, back when, uh, back about 1960. Oh man, that had a, that had to have been a, an outrageous tag team. I mean, just you hear so many, you know, listening to podcasts of the years. I've heard some tales of of, of Jerry Graham, Doctor Jerry Graham, in his later life. But I mean, he had to have been, you know, when he was a little bit more on the a little slowed down. But I couldn't imagine a full in his prime, Doctor Jerry Graham, and then with Furpo, uh, that must have been that could have also made for some very interesting road trips. I'm I'm no doubt it could, you know, no doubt. But Furpo would have been one of those guys, you know, in, in hindsight, we say this all the time, Furpo would have been one of those guys that if, if we could have sat down with him and just got his thoughts and his career and his, his viewpoints on life and everything, just have it all on tape, and therein lies that would be a great book. You know, it's another, another superstar of this business that we didn't get a chance to have him come out to us and share his story because he had a phenomenal career. And by all accounts, uh, he, he was a, a decent human being, a loving man, a Christian God loving man. You know, I saw that, uh, in one of the 
tributes that uh, I guess his daughter said that he, you know, followed God daily. I mean, here we had a man who just was a good guy who gave of his body, gave of his time, and and developed this character that was uh, not quite far-fetched, but it was, and it was believable. And for me, uh, Pam Perro Furple was really, really one of the the great legends of the 50s, late 50s through the early 80s. Uh, Just a great, great guy. So uh, what was it around what time did he decide to, to retire? Uh, because, I mean, uh, he didn't really he, he made it into the mid 80s. But when 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 was it the, that he decided to, to hang it up and, and uh, you know, get back into the private sector of, of life and, and, and go away from the business? I've I've got him going until about 1984, but that was very sporadic. So. I've seen reports where it says he, he wrestled for 30 years. Well, he started in 57. So that would have to take him up. If he did 30 years, I'd have to take him up to 87. And I, I, don't, I honestly do not think he was active in the business uh, in 87. In fact, I want to go back as really about the early 80s. I think he was done. And again, that would have you know, already put him at close to 60 years old. Uh, wouldn't it? Yeah, he's he's 50, in his fifties. Fifties, yeah, yeah, yeah. Early fifties, because born in nineteen thirty, so in eighty he'd have been fifty. So he was done by then. Um, and then you know he had this long twenty-year postal career, where he was enjoying life, uh, delivering mail. I, I just that that's still funny to me. He goes, uh, you know, being the wild man to the guy that gets your your, your letters in on time. I wonder if, uh, you know, because there's always been that uh, stereotype of uh, mailmen and dogs. I wonder if uh, he he actually made some peace with the dogs. You know, every once in a while, if uh, a dog got towards him, maybe he did did one of his growls or something. I have to think that he was probably uh, making peace with the with the pets. Maybe the pets were scared of him initially. Well, maybe that's why you had a problem with Mad Dog Rashan. I don't know. <laughs> well, there we go. We're, 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 we're painting a story here. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, getting that name, too. I mean, yeah, he wrestled under different handles, but the, the one that we that really took hold and he ran with for the, the bulk of his career was Pampero Furpo, and the origin stories of that nickname was, was also something that would make for interesting conversation as well. Well, one of the things that, you know, in the early 60s, he had a he wore a chain around his neck and he had a shrunken head on this chain and he used to uh talk about it was some opponent of his that he preserved you know to kind of add to his mystique and there's also a video out there on YouTube fans can look this up it's Pampero Furpo being interviewed cuz he was known for his strength as well as being, you know, just a powerful wrestler. The video shows him being interviewed by Marty O'Neill. And this was during the time when Furpo was in a, in a feud against the villain, Baron Von Raschke, in the AWA. And they show Furpo taking a steel bar, putting it between his teeth, and then bending it with his hands into the shape of a, uh, basically the shape of a U, upside down U. And they do it on TV. And if fans can look this up, it's on YouTube. 
And Marty is, is in astonishment when he does this. He goes, fans, he's doing it. Oh, my gosh. And then he bends it, he bends it, he bends it. And with, his, with this thing in his teeth, in between his teeth. And then when he's all done, Furpo did his, oh, yeah. And he leaves because he's going to beat Ratchke. And then Marty takes the, the metal and he drops it. And you can hear it clang onto the floor of the studio. And um, that was one of his feats of strength. So that's out there. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, he gets his name, this wild man name. I, I, I didn't know much about this. Uh, I was actually boxing great Jack Dempsey that was uh, yeah. getting that name. Yeah. I thought that was, that was so cool. That. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, what was it? Uh, he was looking for a gimmick and Dempsey uh, remembered uh, like a, an opponent, one of his famous opponents that was uh, an Argentinian, uh, yeah, was uh, the wild bull, the Pampas, uh, Louis Angel Furpo suggesting and, and the grappler be billed as uh, he'll be the son of Furpo. I thought that, you know, it's always fun to get the origin stories of how these character names came together and, and some of the connections, but yeah, world champ, former world champ, uh, had the wherewithal to, to come up with this interesting name for a gimmick that went on and on and he ran with it and he really, um, cemented his career on it and all the way up to his passing here this week, we, we've, we've remember him for, so you got to say that was some pretty good thinking on, on, on the part of the champ. It was interesting. I was looking, as you mentioned the name. And I was looking through my results here, and he was using the Ivan the Terrible name up until 1963, ending up in the the Dallas-Fort Worth territory, actually Texas overall. He was in Corpus Christi, San Antonio. He was in Houston, Lake Charles. Um, But he was still Ivan the Terrible and teamed with Tony Bourne for some of that time. Then he moved to California in April of of, uh, 63, and that was when he started wrestling as the Great Pampero. And then after that, he morphed into, because eventually after, um, oh boy, he was there about a year, about a year, and then he headed to Omaha, and he was now wrestling as Pampero Purple. So... It was about 1964 in February when he started that Pampero Purple name. And that ran, that was, was a, an impressive run for him, too, up until his retirement. Well, it looks like it's our impressive run of wrestling memories. Uh, this episode is uh, getting close to an end here. The timekeeper always gives me that that eye that says you better wrap it up. And, uh, boy, we had a good time. It's always good to have you back here. I mean, uh, of course, under some uh, unfort- sad circumstances. But this turned out, again, to be more of a celebration of, of a man who left us but left behind such a, a great legacy for, for pro wrestling. Uh, and just seemed like a good all-around human being. But it's it's really fun for us to get together, too, to just to chat and, and, and talk about. And I always learn from you every time we do this uh, about these great wrestlers and, and their past. Well, you're a kind man, and it is. It is always fun to uh, get together and, and chat about them. And it is sad, but, you know, I've come to come to expect this, Glenn. I know it seems like in the last year and a half, two years, you and I have only connected on the wrestling memories here when we're talking about the passing I guess I feel honored that I'm able to share some of the stories and the memories when they pass. And yes, it's sad for me. Some hit me harder than others. Uh, Dr. X really jolted me last year. That was the toughest one to date for me personally, even though I love all these guys dearly. But you know what? 
it, it is, as I said earlier, it's part of life. Life is death, and uh, it's inevitable, and it's fun that we can share the memories and, and, uh, and enlighten those that didn't get to see them. If they're interested, uh, we can tell you many, many stories about these colorful characters, and certainly Pampero Furpo was a colorful character and, and one that deserved to be uh, immortalized as far as I'm concerned, and I'm glad he's in the Hall of Fame down in Texas. I want to thank you, my friend, for uh, asking me to come on and, and getting this done, and uh, uh, sympathy to the Furpo family, the, the Juan Cashmanian family. Um, his real name, Juan Cashmanian, and uh, our sympathy to them. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And uh, again, it's guys like you, George, to keep these uh, these these the news and the the information alive with uh, the caretakers of a lot of these uh, pro wrestlers and the history. And it's always again, I I'm I feel most blessed to be able to have this platform where we can get on here and talk and, and, and add some more uh, audio history to just keep these names, these spirits alive and, and to really show the real overall appreciation of the people who are here before us in the world of pro wrestling. I know that can get sometimes uh, muddled in the uh, unfortunate world of the catch as catch can that is social media, but it's also nice to have some credible people, the go-to people that I I, I, I go to for a question about a pro wrestling a pro wrestler from the past. It's nice to have you guys there because there can be so much so much of the message and so much of the history can really be uh revisionist or it can be messed around here in social media here in this these day these days and times but it's nice to have you guys holding it down doing the research showing the love and affection for something that you've you you, you got hooked on as a kid but you you stay it stayed with you and i think that is a testament to just what a great job you guys have done and, and some of the historians before you and hopefully some of the historians after you. So thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Thank you very much, Glenn. I'd much appreciated to, to be on with you as always. For George Shire, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.